Hi, this is Catherine Nichols. I'm here with Sandra Newman and this is Lit Century, our podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This year, our book is Blues for Mr. Charlie from 1964. It's a play by James Baldwin, who of course is better known for his uh, fiction and nonfiction, but this play has an interesting production history that we'll get into with our guest, Isaac Butler. He's an actor and director himself, as well as the co-host of Slate's Working Podcast. And that comes out on Sundays, so you can listen to that without it cutting into your lit century time. Um, he also um, He's also writing a book on the history of method acting, which is more closely connected uh, with James Baldwin than I realized. Um, so that was really interesting. You're going to hear a lot about it. Uh, we ended up talking a lot about this play, so we split the conversation into two episodes. In next week's episode, we'll talk more about the play's production history, and there will be a rant that um, Sandy promises near the beginning of this episode. You're going to hear that next week. This week, we're talking more about the play itself. So with that said, on to the conversation. So this play is very explicitly based on the murder of Emmett Till, which had happened um, nine years before the play debuted in... uh, 1964. And um, that was the lynching of a 14-year-old boy. Uh, And the details of what happened that led up to his lynching are very similar to what's happening in this play. But it's dramatized with a completely different main character. The main character of this play is um, Richard Henry. And he's He's much older, for one thing. Um, he has a lot of properties that um, are just very different than the narrative, the public narrative around Emmett Till. And also, it, he's not—he's not fourteen. He's an adult. Um, Isaac, what what did you make of this character? Yeah, I mean, he, Richard is a really fascinating character in a number of ways because, like, you know they they were very open that this was based on the on the killing of Emmett Till right that was Elia Kazan's original idea that he 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 gave to Baldwin was you should write a play about that's based on Emmett Till but instead he's like a jazz musician in his i think early 20s who has been living in New York City and comes back down um South, uh, he was originally played by Al Freeman Jr., who's a kind of brilliant actor who went on to run the drama program at Howard. But what he really reminds me a lot of is Rufus in Baldwin's Another Country, which is his, to me, his sort of first real like masterpiece, major, huge novel that comes out in 1962. So, you know, this play had a long gestation period. And during that gestation period, he wrote Another Country. And the first part of that novel is in close third from the perspective of Rufus on kind of his last night on earth. Cause he commits suicide at the end of the chapter. If I remember correctly, he throws himself off the George Washington bridge, but he is um, a musician living in New York city who gets involved with a white woman and their relationship spirals further and further out of control until he is routinely physically abusive to her. And she winds up committed in a mental hospital in the South. And so there's something of that fury and um, feeling of lostness and wanting to escape to New York and then finding a different kind of hell because the social codes are secret instead of public 
um, and not being able to navigate that and the madness that that causes that I feel like is um, really, really present in the character of Richard. Uh, and I think if I were to go back and read another country right now, I'd be like, yeah, these are, these are very, very similar folks. Yeah. I read it without that background, but more thinking of the problem of playwriting. If you're trying to dramatize something that is so morally simple, um, there's no, there's no choice to be made. If you're the Emmett Till character, there's no choice to be made. If you're the murderer character, it's not, it's not an ethical decision. It's like, uh, the tweet of Sandy's that we talked about in a previous, um, a previous episode that part of ethics is deciding which questions are ethical questions. And clearly a person who is lynching a 14 year old does not understand that as an ethical decision the way that we would. He's yeah. not, he's not a character that's interesting enough to kind of carry a play. And so it's, it's weird. I think that the one person who has an actual sort of a, a rich choice to be made is the the Parnell character who's almost like a Atticus Finch kind of person who's like trying to be a good white man and is kind of awful. Um, that's how I read him anyway. Um, but like a white audience stand-in kind of character. But then I thought the decision of making Richard so much older and stronger and so much more able to antagonize white people on his own terms, it felt ethically dodgy to me. But at the same time, I was like, yeah, I would like it if Emmett Till had had an opportunity to have that much sense of self. Yeah, I, I think that, that it's a feature of the way that Baldwin approaches the racial issues is that he's attempting to create more ethical agency for both black and white people and to give them more ethical dignity and particularly giving white people more ethical dignity than perhaps they actually have. Um, For sure. And I I I have have like a a long, and long kind of harangue thing that I I, want to do closer to the end about the the history of this problem for black writers, how they feel that they, they have to write for white audiences and they have to approach these issues in a way that will be effective not only in terms of literature, but in terms of politics. And it creates this impossible double bind for them, which I think Baldwin solves in a really interesting way here. But part of what gets thrown out is the reality of the Emma Till case and the, you know, the simple horror of it, which, you know, the, the most effective drama to come out of that case, of course, was his funeral, which was staged by his mother. And that is what everyone remembers. Um, yes. Uh, yes. And, but I do think there's something of that, that Baldwin harnesses here in that there's this sort of ritualized feel to the play. I don't know if, if, if y'all felt that, but like, you know, if you read his description of what the sets are supposed to be like and how sort of anti-realistic they are. And then when we get to what is really a sort of play within the play, which is the trial of Lyle, Mm. the man who murdered Richard, um, where it's punctuated by these moments where the characters in silhouette narrate their internal monologues in flashbacks of moments of their lives, you know, and then Mm. we also see a religious service within it. And there is a sense in which once 
Richard and Lyle meet, they both kind of know how this encounter is going to end and, and almost feel like they're enacting this kind of, again, this kind of public ritual with each other. Um, uh, there, there is a way in which I think he's keenly aware of the kind of staged performance aspects of all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that he is a lot more the, the play, let's say rather than Baldwin himself considers the role of the, the church to be uh, a lot more negative than I think I do looking back at this era of civil rights protest compared to our current era of civil rights protest. I think he can see the negatives of what the church is doing in terms of how it's asking people to be more passive and to, um, to think of other people as individuals where they're being treated as um, types within a power system. And um, like he sees the, the church as, as taking power away from uh, black people who otherwise would be carrying guns and would be defending themselves more. Mm. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's actually something that, I don't know if like, if you do reduce the, in the influence of religion in people's lives. I don't know if, if that then makes them more powerful yeah, as a group. I, yeah. Although, you know, Baldwin who had a very, I would say complicated relationship to his religious upbringing to, to, to put it mildly, um, uh, certainly felt some sense of, of greater dignity having, having left that part of his life behind. I, I think with good reason. With yes. Good, it's very good reason. And I, I think, you know, one of the weird things or one of the bracing things about reading this play is since it's written in 1964, it has this kind of skeptical, complicated look, very sanguine look at, at nonviolence, right. At, um, Mm -hmm. at nonviolent protest and at protest sort of centered through the church, which was an institution Baldwin was extremely skeptical of. And, you know, I think that in part because of the history of this particular decade that the play is in the middle of, we tend to have a very different point of view on that stuff than Baldwin does uh, or that the play does in this moment of like, well, I don't know how successful this strategy is going to be. I don't know if we aren't just robbing people of their dignity. And, you know, in this summer where I feel like, which is when I thought about, you know, maybe us talking about this play was over the course of this past summer where we've seen a sort of, I think renewed skepticism about the value of peaceful protest. Um, uh, that, that was a really bracing thing to encounter. That's a really good point. Uh, I thought that the fact that they took away Emmett's youth and made him into this this character who really could understand what was happening to him, he could understand the ritual elements of what was happening to him. Um, I think that if power only found you when you were ready for it, it would be a totally different thing. I think the fact that there is a community that already is ready to understand and interpret the experiences that the young children are having, the, um, you know, the, um, the book, the play is dedicated to Medgar Evers, widow and children and um, the children who are killed in Birmingham and that there's already a community narrative so that even though those people are not going to understand what's happening to them or why, because they're just little kids, um, 
that there will be people who can narrativize those experiences and that they're not alone. Um, I, I, I understand his skepticism of the church, but I also, I don't know what takes the place of that. Well, I'm thinking if you take away the church in a, this has just come to me. I don't know how I missed this before, but but actually Richard, the way that Richard's death is ritualized, as Isaac was saying in, in the play, it almost turns him into a nonviolent protester who is sacrificing his life. And what that achieves in the terms of the play is that it radicalizes other people and pushes them to the point where they're willing to think about guns. They're willing to take up arms so that it, it's almost as if the... The entire purpose of SNCC is to give rise to the Black Panthers in the terms of, of this play, um, which is sort of like now that it strikes me, that's that's kind of interesting and feels so natural that it's almost invisible when you're, well, when you're reading the play. I actually haven't seen it performed. Yeah, it's almost never performed. It's a very, very rarely produced play in part because it's cast as like 30 people and mm-hmm. that's just price wise and a baby i was wondering how do you even like there's all these scenes that feature lyle's baby and him like having like fatherhood feelings uh you do so, the usual loaf of bread wrapped in a blanket type yeah. deal or if it's on broadway maybe you can get an animatronic baby or something <laughs> um yeah but you know yeah and I think the other thing that that sacrifice, the other thing that sacrifice does, you know, one of the interesting things about the play, and maybe this connects to your eventual harangue, Sandy, is mm-hmm. how much of it is about the pressures put on Parnell, the newspaper editor, um, who is in some odd way, the play's actual protagonist is the white newspaper editor. Um, in that- he's the only one who has any moral agency and an actual problem that could be seen as complex. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, I think, I think the Reverend Meridian, you know, goes through his own journey over the course of it, but, um, but Parnell is a really fascinating figure. He is also, um, if you're just reading the play, I think the character is actually older. There's some hints of it in the play than you think reading the text. Um, he was played in the original production by Pat Hingle, who's probably most famous for being playing Warren Beatty's father in Splendor in the Grass. Hmm. So he's like in his mid to late forties, actually. Um, I sort of thought he was like 35 or something, but he's, he's an older guy. He's an alcoholic <laughs> washed up uh, son of wealth who runs this newspaper in town. And he's the only one who has this kind of serious, um, ethical major ethical dilemma within the play because he is childhood best friends and continues to be best friends with uh Richard's murderer Lyle mm-hmm. right and he is also family friends with uh Richard's family with his father Meridian he knows Richard's community he has a uh uh one senses he has a a preference for black women um and that his you know his original the great love of his life was actually a black woman um uh and and all of those things and and he has in, in many ways the most complicated journey um in the play which i thought was a a, a really fascinating choice within this 
story that's based on the killing of Emmett Till and dedicated to Medgar Evers that the, the, the tortured white newspaper editor is sort of the play's main character. Eh, I mean, I think it's probably, it was probably a more interesting choice at the time at this point, maybe I shouldn't be talking about the 20th century. Cause I'm like, what's with the tropes guys? Like, uh, <laughs> move past it, you know? Um, I, I just hate the fact that he is actually the one who has an ethical dilemma. It seems like a very post-World War II, um, you know, like all the efforts to kind of um, say like, oh, well, the Nazis were just like, uh, like it could have happened to anyone. Any of us could have been Nazis if things had been a little different. Um, Like that, that effort to sort of make... Germany into a suitable trading partner for America again um, involved. Uh, I took notes on all the, you know, the various, um, how much pain would you cause, so, you know, somebody if, uh, if an authority figured Milgram experiment, that's what I'm trying to say. The, those experiments were put together on purpose in order to say like, oh, this is a psychological thing that can happen and you're not entirely responsible for it if you become an absolute um, ethical monster um, and do monstrous things. And it feels like the entire second half of the 20th century was obsessed with the psychology of people who are doing horrible things. And in some ways, I think Parnell is one of those. He's like, uh, you know, like the walrus and the carpenter, like which one is worse, the one who the one who is just doing what he's doing and the one, the one who knows that what he's doing is bad, but still does it. Um, he's the one who knows that what he's doing is bad, but still does it. And the idea that he comes up with these justifications for Lyle's behavior, like, Oh, well, you know, poor white people have had it just as bad as, you know, whatever word he uses um, for black yeah, people I- over the years. Like there's this mealy mouthness about him that I find so, I'm like, I don't, I don't want this guy to be my tour guide through this world. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating to me because he is so flawed. I mean, flawed protagonists are wonderful. Right. But, but it's interesting that he's so weak. Right. I mean, he is a, he, he, um, he, what, whatever it is that he sets out to do in the play, he fails pretty miserably at it, which I think is, um, which I think is, is really fascinating, right? He sets out to get Lyle to confess to him that he murdered Richard. Lyle doesn't do it. He gets on the stand and he lets Lyle and his wife get away with lying about all sorts of things in the trial. Um, and then at the very end, you know, he's sort of left without a community, which I think is really fascinating. The, the white community has exiled him by the end of the play. They've said like, you know, that, that he's sort of not welcome in these sort of in this choral moment. And then at the very, very end of the play, he turns to Juanita Richard's ex-girlfriend, or I guess almost widow um, uh, and says, can I join you on the March Juanita? Can I walk with you? And she says, it's basically the last line of the play. Well, we can walk in the same direction Parnell. Right. So yeah, he's, yeah. he's left with, 
you know, we've gone on this journey and what, and, and I think multiple people have changed over the course of it, particularly the Reverend and Parnell, but where Parnell is, is at this moment where he's like just starting to figure out that, that maybe he could like do something beyond his sort of, he could actually pick a side in it. Um, but it's not clear the side he's picked once him, uh, which I think is a, a fascinatingly ambiguous place to end this story. What did you think about Parnell, Sandy? Well, I'll say, I think it's really interesting that he is, in a way, the point of view character for the white audience, as Baldwin conceives of the white audience. Uh, he is supposed to be relatable to us. Um, and I think I'd, I'd like to use him as a pivot to talk about the the one thing that I think is least successful in the play, which is the Juanita character, who is who is there to be sexualized by four different male characters. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> and it gets ridiculous by the end. Like every male character, if he's alone with Anita, Juanita, sorry, will eventually like confess that he has always carried a torch for her. And she's standing there like, oh, but Richard is, the, is basically <laughs> her answer to all of that. And she, and yeah, and it's all very, very strange actually in the way it's played and, and that's kind of like the the treatment of women in the plays is a serious weakness, which and it feels very much kind of like it relies on a lazy kind of Tennessee Williams steaminess, which sometimes works and feels political, but at other times just feels a little bit clammy, especially with regard to the Parnell character. It's yeah, I mean, <laughs> really, it, it is a very horny play. Yeah. Right. I mean, um, like it's, it's, yeah, but it's, it, sorry. No, no. I, and I think there's a, there is a political project there, right? Because it's the nightmare of black men having sex with white women that, that is that yeah. is such a motivating force amongst the white characters in the play. And then it is their desire for black women that, that, you know, counterbalances that. And it's like those two things together drive the white characters in the play to a kind of madness. Well, the white um, men though, because yeah. like the they're really it's like the women really are just like a resource. And then I think that they often also take the place of like the more positive side of the church is the idea that it's like the the community or narrativizing or meaning building comes from the idea like, oh well if you have a woman who loves you, um, and then you have children, that's like that is your sense of it's like you you won. That's your continuity. <laughs> yeah, which um, is that's the laziest trope in the play, I think is that kind of steamy versus clammy. Yeah. <laughs> it's a steamy clammy play. Yeah. Steamed clams. They should yeah. have called the play steamed clams. But it is interesting. Like in the play that, that, that idea of like black male sexuality being a threat and the way that white people see all forms of black resistance as potential rape, which is really, really powerfully represented in the play is kind of turned on its head so that, Baldwin sometimes seems to be insinuating that white violence towards black people is entirely motivated by their desire for unfettered access to the rape of black women. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, I, I, I totally felt that I, there is also a really fascinating early point in the play where, someone I, I forget who it is. Um, someone is talking about a consensual relationship between a black man and a white woman. And then the, the other person immediately says rape our women, you know, that yeah. like there, there is no way for it to be consensual. And, 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 you know, 
it's a weird thing because I feel like in part because this is right after another country, which is all about interracial romantic and sexual relationships that, that there is something that Baldwin is circling about, you know, sex as the root of all of this stuff that, uh, I both find fascinating and not entirely convincing. Yeah. I mean, maybe this is, this is, um, my being, uh, from the wrong century to really talk about this as if it's still fresh, but the idea that, um, falling in love with somebody from a different culture means that you are then less racist. Um, I mean, we have a lot of advice column questions now that show that, that it just doesn't work like that. Oh, I didn't read it as saying that. Did you don't you? think that that was part that, that that was part of like Parnell's origin story was like oh well, he fell in love with a no. black girl that's how he like became less racist. Oh, I totally read that as his view. Like he thought that made yeah. him less racist. But we are definitely. I thought. I thought definitely we were meant to regard that with that. with unease and disgust. <laughs> but maybe that was yeah. just because I did, and I thought, oh, everyone no, I, must I, be feeling. I agree when Parnell says that stuff, or when he says, you know, poor white people have it just as bad as poor black people. Right after a black person has been murdered and we, everyone knows the killer's going to get away with it. You know, like I, I think those kinds of stuff are supposed to read like white liberal platitudes and we're meant to find them extremely suspect. Uh, I think Parnell believes them, but I think we're supposed to find his wisdom about this stuff totally inadequate to the task at hand. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I see that. I, I, I agree. Yeah. Okay. Because, you know, in a weird way, Lyle, Lyle feels like he loved on some level Willa May, the, yeah. the the black woman who he also sort of confesses to having raped, uh, and he whose husband he murdered. Raped, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, um, yes, he fully confesses to having raped her, and um, whose husband he murdered. Right, and so mm. I I think that that um there is a real question about how redemptive a force love can actually be in the world and in, in whatever variety we're talking about, right? Whether it's the, the love of the church or the love of your fellow man or woman uh, of, of your race or of another race or the, a romantic love or a sexual love. There's a real question about how redemptive any of that stuff can actually be that's running through the play That's our first episode on Blues for Mr. Charlie by James Baldwin. Thank you to Isaac Butler for talking to us and to Adam Bear for our music. Also, we'd like to thank LitHub for hosting us. If you'd like to write to us, please either tweet us at LitCenturyPod on Twitter or write an uh, email at LitCenturyPodcast at uh, gmail.com. And come back next week for the second half of our discussion about Blues for Mr. Charlie.